The show is hosted by myself, Mark Oppenheimer, and uh, Jason Werbelov. And today we have a really exciting guest, someone who is also a philosopher lawyer, one of my colleagues, um, Aaron Fasser. So not only is he an outstanding advocate, but he's um, also someone with an insatiable lust for philosophy because he has um, multiple philosophy degrees. Uh, he has a master's in applied ethics, and then for good measure, he did a, a master's in uh, philosophy of religion. So Aaron, I gather you have a nice thought experiment to start off with. Uh, yeah, I do. Um, thanks for having me, guys. It's really it's a pleasure to be on here and to be discussing this with you guys. Um, so the, the thought experiment that I just wanted to throw out and get your guys' um, views on um, has to do with, a thought. I don't claim any originality to this thought experiment. It was uh, an idea that was I actually saw for the first time in a video game that I played many years ago called uh, Techno Babylon. And the idea is roughly this. So we're called upon to imagine some futuristic society. So we want, want to get our technological mindset right. And this society has the ability to grow human clones very rapidly. So like in the space of a couple of minutes, you can grow uh, a human clone. Um, that is biologically human in every single way. And obviously, because it's the future in this thought experiment, um, the idea is that they've got a database um, that has that can store hundreds of thousands of different gene sequences. So you can really grow any person that's in this in this uh, database. And the idea is that. This could also include historical figures uh, like Marilyn Monroe, John F. Kennedy, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, whoever it is, can be, their gene sequence can be spun up and you can grow a, a life-size clone in a vat. So, um, obviously, these, the idea is that these clones will never be conscious. So there's nothing, to use um, Thomas Nagel's uh, phrase, there's nothing that it's like to be these clones, um, but from a morphological perspective, they're identical in every other way. There's just no inner life, so to speak. So there's no qualitative sensorial experiences. They're not aware of um, their environment, um, let alone aware that they are themselves any sort of being. Um, and then the thought experiment says, all right, so now that you've conceived what these sorts of um, entities are, um, imagine that you were to open a restaurant, right? And this is where things get a little uh, macabre and gross, and this is where it gets fun. Imagine you were to open a restaurant where you want to now merge the idea of, you know, these clones with a culinary experience. And the culinary experience and the, the, the selling point for your restaurant is come to our restaurant, tell us which historical figure or which person you would like, you've always wanted to taste, and we will, in a space of 15 minutes, grow this person in a vat, out of sight, so you don't have to see the process. Um, and then you can just place your order. So if you want um, a leg of Marilyn Monroe, well, that's coming right up for you. Um, if you want John F. Kennedy's ribs, you can have that with some barbecue sauce. So this cannibalistic culinary uh, buffet is open to you. And People can come and, um, you know, they can pay for the experience um, um, and the nourishment of, of, of eating a human clone. 
and they can do it guilt-free, right? Because there's no concern that there's any suffering involved in the growing of the clone. It's not like we've had to um, teach the clone language or that it's a living being and then it gets killed. No, in 15 minutes it gets grown and then um, it can be uh, cooked for, for, um, for consumption. Um, and the question obviously that arises is, um, would it be uh, morally permissible uh, to go and patron this sort of restaurant? So that's the, that's the thought experiment. I think it's just such a cool thought experiment, Aaron. <laughs> it is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, when I first heard it, I couldn't stop laughing. It's just fantastic. Um, <laughs> the, the cyberpunk science fiction writer in me just really loves this and is quite jealous that I never wrote it. Um, it's, it's fantastic. So, I mean, really what you're trying to get at there is, is it okay? Um, <clears throat> really what you're trying to ask is, is there value in human life per se? Um, abstracted from any mental states that these people have. So, or I, I'm calling them people, which is already a mistake, right? So, you know, abstract of any, any like, the clone is just a biological human being, um, but has no mind. And absent of a mind, is it, does it have any value? I think that's what the, the thought experiment's trying to get at, right? Yes, that's exactly right. So the question is um, to, for some of your viewers who, who may not be um, uh, philosophically um, up to date with the lingo, um, it's an axiological question. So it's a question about the value in, mo in the moral sense that this entity does or does not have and it kind of pushes your intuitions around as to why it may or may not have any value you want to ascribe to it. That's absolutely correct. So let's play around with it a little bit. So I think some people are going to have this strong intuition that it feels wrong uh, to eat something that resembles a human being, even if they accept that it is not uh, like you and I, because it has no inner life. Um, it was grown in a vat, as you say, so there's no brain, there's no capacity for suffering, um, but it very much looks like us. Um, and so we might have these other kinds of concerns about its value. So we might think that um, if you had to take a lifelike effigy of someone and set it ablaze, that you'd be showing distaste for that person. Um, and that person themselves, imagine I made the, the perfect uh, uh, Aaron, um, virtual <laughs> doll you know in silicone um and then i and and i beat it up you know in, in yeah. front of my <laughs> front of my house and, and you see me beating it up you know you might yeah. feel personally affronted by the fact that i'm doing this um yes. you might see it's not just an affront yeah. to the to the doll but to you yes. but what's interesting is the case that you've given us is marilyn monroe now marilyn yes. monroe uh has ceased to exist yeah. right Exactly. So she can have exactly. no complaints about the doll-like version of her, the hyper-real doll being eaten because right. she's dead. Um, you could imagine maybe that she has no surviving family members either. Um, and so really there is no one who is wronged in that personal sense. Hmm. So we then have to ask ourselves, well, what is it about human life that is valuable? Is it the mere humanness? Is it that we are part of this... Um, species, um, or is it that there are certain mental states uh, or certain kinds of other attributes? Now, I mean, what's interesting is these sorts of questions about the value of life um, seem to have other kinds of implications. So one way in which it's discussed is 
well, what about other kinds of things that are alive, like animals? So one view is, well, there's no problem with eating animals because they're not human and we value human life. We think it's wrong to kill human beings, um, but animals are non-humans, so it's okay to kill them. And one of the objections is to say, well, that's uh, speciesist. You're discriminating really on the basis of the species of the animal. Um, and really there should be these other neutral factors like capacity for experiencing pain um, or ability to sort of uh, have an inner life um, or to reflect on your circumstances. And it may turn out that only human beings of a certain sort have this capacity, not all human beings. So, you know, the particular clone that you have has none of those capacities. So the question is, do we respect humanness as a proxy and say, well, there's going to be these aberrations down the line, um, yes. or do we start looking at neutral features? Yeah, so I think you've, I mean, I think you've hit on three of the uh, big areas. So we've, you, you mentioned this, this, this first um, visceral reaction that I think we have to acknowledge by a thought experiment of this sort is just the disgust that it arouses, right? So um, oftentimes people will use disgust as a proxy for an, an affective or emotional proxy for what is moral or not moral. And I think that that can quickly, easily be shown to be a mistake in a number of cases. So um, there are many things that people find, used to find disgusting, but which we no longer find disgusting. Um, and we think, and for that reason, we no longer think were, was immoral. So for example, you can imagine in the dark old ages before um, we were more accepting of gay marriage or homosexual uh, love relationships. Many people found it immoral um, for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons was there was just this visceral for, for whatever reason, people had a disgust reaction to that, say, or um, to eating certain foods, people have a disgust reaction to it. And we can quickly show that there's nothing really rational about just this neat reflexive, um, um, uh, this reflexive disgust response. So I think we've got to, if we're going to find the morality or immorality of these in, in thought experience of this sort, we have to dig deeper than just the surface level of disgust. And then I think that takes us to the, the next level, which is the question of offense. So moving up from disgust, we might think, and you mentioned that maybe there are other people around who might find it offensive. Um, I think we can obviously push the, the thought experiment by, for example, like using the Marilyn Monroe example, um, somebody who's not alive, who's not going to be offended, um, They've got no kin or friends who would be offended. And we could even push the experiment even further and say, well, even if people might be offended by this, we could always set it up so that you can have your culinary cuisine in private, right? So you don't have to worry about anybody. Nobody else is going to ever see who or what you're, you're eating. So the offense doesn't really get to the core of what's um, immoral. Um, or what someone might think is immoral about eating this, this sort of clone. And then you raise the issue of, of speciesism, which is, of course, the, the unjustified bias or um, a favor that one gives oneself simply by virtue of being the sort of species that you are. And that seems no more on par than racism or sexism. And the reason we think that those are not good moral positions to hold is because of the arbitrariness of it. There doesn't seem to be any relevant factor that you can pick out that would make a moral um, difference in the situation. So I think you're absolutely right to point that those are all 
um, answers that people could give, but they would be um, inadequate answers to, to the question. And I think that then pushes you, and this is why it becomes quite tricky, is to try and put your finger on what it is about this biological entity um, that is um, um, that would that would warrant a kind of moral response, and I think it starts to push us into the direction of um, the notion of intrinsic value. That certain things might just be such in reality that they are worthy of moral consideration simply in virtue of being the sorts of things uh, that they are. So I wonder, Aaron, whether have you thought about the voodoo case? So you've got this doll, right? I get a doll of Aaron. So it's yeah, no longer yeah. the silicon version, which we're going to burn, right? It's not an yes. effigy. It's, not it's, an effigy now, yeah. it's now, it's now like a, a spongy Aaron, right? right. Spongy Aaron doll. And I, and, and, and with great intentionality and great, uh, with great will and desire, I want to harm you, Aaron. So what yes. I do is I kind of like, I have this doll, and I take a bunch of pins and I start needling this doll and I want to cause you great harm. Yeah. Now, I mean, let's put, let's put aside the question of whether that harm is effective, right? So let's put aside yes. the question of you actually suffer yes. because it's yes. doll. Yes. Um, question is, uh, am I doing something wrong? Yes. Um, so yeah. so I've, I've got a cat here, sorry. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so, the, so the question is, am I doing something wrong by wanting to harm you kind of, um, you know, you know, there's no, there's no actual harm going on. Um, yeah. Let's just assume there's no actual harm going on, just like in the eating of yeah. the, the, the clone case. Yes. Um, but, but it does seem like there's something wrong with it. Yes, yes. And I, I think what you're gesturing towards, Jason, is um, the distinction. I mean, you, you guys will know that there's a distinction in uh, moral philosophy and the literature on, on ethical philosophy, about a distinction between... Um, wrong or permissible or impermissible actions versus something you may want to say about the person's character, right? So the distinction between um, the analysis of the permissibility of action, right? So which would be cashed out by uh, the two major branches of normative ethics, deontological ethics and consequentialist ethics. But then there's, we may also think that even if we've got a, a handle on whether an action is permissible or impermissible in a moral sense, we may think that there's still something, there's still something residual that we would want to say about the character of the person. So, and make, we would then want to make uh, the, the term that I would reach for is an aretaic judgment. So aretaic comes from the Greek word arete, which means uh, virtue. So we want to also in certain circumstances want to make some sort of moral judgment on the status of a person's character. So we could imagine a circumstance where we can't really point to any right or wrong making property of the action itself. Nevertheless, we would still have moral qualms about being the sort of person who would do that. And I think that that's definitely a consideration that we may want to take here. We may ultimately, with these sorts of experiments, come up with a, a theory that says, or a, an account that says, yeah, there's nothing really wrong with this in, in terms of viewed as an action, but who wants to be that sort of person, right? Who goes and eats a, a human clone, right? There's something vicious. There's something vicious about that. So I've got a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, I think that's a clever way of cashing it out. And I think it's important to draw that distinction between morality of actions, and morality of character. One of the problems with virtue ethics is we've got all these virtues that 
stand alongside each other and it's not clear which was the one that, that trumps. So a classic example to me is, you know, the wife says, do I look fat in these jeans? And the question is, should I be kind or should I be honest? You know, there's a clash between these two virtues. And you might think, for example, being a person who is adventurous um, uh, is a virtue. And a truly adventurous person is the kind of person who will eat the Marilyn Monroe clone. Um, right. Now, but you might think it's sort of, when you say that it's vicious, you know, what do we mean besides a vicious person is someone who does bad things to others? So there's a way in which I think I might be able to explain the wrongness of, of Jason's case with the voodoo doll, which is imagine you've got a choice between living in two worlds. The one is one in which uh, everyone regards you well. They think of you highly and they treat you highly. And the other one is everyone thinks that uh, you're a terrible person and they think you're an idiot but they treat you exactly like they do in the first world, very well. And you've got a choice between which world you'd prefer to live in. Now, I think you'd have a preference for the states in which people think of you well and treat you well. You have a, you have a desire to be thought of well. And that implies that when that, that interest is set aside, that you have suffered some kind of harm, even if you're unaware of it. So imagine that um, you, uh, I steal from you, but you never find out. I think you were harmed or your wife cheats on you, but you never find out, uh, you're still harmed. So I, I think it could be the case, in other words, with the voodoo doll, that even if you never find out that Jason was poking holes in it, he harmed you nonetheless because he was thinking of you badly. But what's interesting is the Marilyn Monroe clone has no capacity to hold interests and therefore can never be harmed in that sense either. And so we might think that uh, it cannot be harmed, uh, therefore, it is not vicious behavior or a, a character vice to each Marilyn Monroe. In fact, you might be, you know, celebrated as an adventurous character. Hmm. No, I, I think that that's a perfectly legitimate way to try to do that. I think that also there's something about, in, the, in Jason's voodoo example case, there's something, we want to say that there's something not just bad, it's not just that I'm harmed, right? It's not, it's not just that, uh, there's some interest that I have as the object of the voodoo doll stabbing, right? That is set back and, or undermined. There's something about Jason's intention to want to do that. That seems to be a bad making feature all its own, regardless of whether we have in a sense of harm can only be a subjective interest that I'm aware of. And so I can only be harmed if I'm aware of the harm making action or whether we want to think about harm in a more objective sense where I can be harmed even if I'm not myself subjectively aware of the harm that has been perpetrated. Like in your example of stealing from me, even if I'm not aware of it. So I think that that's fine. I have no problem with that sort of analysis, um, either of those. And I'm not sure which one is correct, right? Whether it's a subjective account of harm or an objective account of harm, I can be, not, one can be agnostic on that. But I think what's particularly egregious about Jason's case of, of stabbing the voodoo doll is the, the willful intention to cause harm on me, right? That's the bad making feature in that case that we can pick out, right? The fact that it's not effective because, you know, voodoo dolls, there's no supernatural mechanism that could make that work is really besides the, the, the case. So I think there's a number of, there's maybe, maybe what we could say there is in Jason's case, there's actually two wrong making features. One is that there's something wrong about the willful intention to harm somebody else in and of itself. And let's say we adopt this 
um, objective harm that you've been talking about, I've also suffered an objective harm. So there's, it's now even worse than we thought it was before. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm wondering, you know, relating this to the world we live in today, uh, the lockdown, a COVID situation, questions about whether you willingly sacrifice lives to save an economy, even though that's vastly oversimplified. Um, you know, I wonder, I wonder whether it relates. So, you know, this idea that um, the, if you were to be callous about it and say, okay, the people who are dying are older people anyway, they're vulnerable people anyway, they may have died at a later stage anyway, they don't have many years to live anyway, uh, let's just sacrifice them on the altar of the economy. I wonder whether that isn't similar to the person prodding, prodding the, the needles in, in the voodoo doll or the person taking a nice chunk out of, uh, out of Marilyn Monroe's leg. Um, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, it, it shows kind of a perniciousness towards yes. people. Um, yes. In other words, the, the objection, you know, Mark and I have discussed this at length and we've said, you know, the question about whether you want to um, raise the lockdown or not might be reduced to questions in utilitarianism or Kantianism, deontology. But it might, you know, something we haven't really considered is it might be a question of virtue, right? Yes. You know, it might be virtuous to, to maintain a lockdown to protect people, regardless of the utility calc involved. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, think, that, I think that that's absolutely correct. Um, I think there's definitely a space for looking at the COVID crisis, for example, from the, from the, the, the perspective of the virtue ethicist. Um, I mean, I think, I think there's, two, there's two ways that people can think about virtue ethics. One could be to think of, to try elevate virtue ethics to itself a substantive account of right action or right policy making. So in other words, in, in approach, we could think about virtue ethics this way. So for example, we could think in responding to the COVID crisis, what would a, we could make, what policy would a virtuous society or a virtuous government embrace as a way of determining the correct policy to endorse that's so in that in that mode you're basically saying there's a third option to deontology and um consequentialism as the two broad camps right that's so that's one way of dealing with it the other way of dealing with it is saying well we could we need to approach the the view from the two camps either deontological or consequentialist but there's still something to be said about a society that would choose one way or the other. So in other words, virtue ethics, even though it's not a, a substantive theory of right action, still collects the, the moral residue, so to speak. I mean, it's a bit of a, bit of a um, uh, it's not quite the nice way to speak about virtue ethics, but that's what it's doing. It's, it's, it's um, a supplement to our moral reasoning. So we want to ideally be in a position where we both choose a, a response to COVID, a, a proper COVID response that is both moral and ethical in the sense that it, it's, it's worthy of a just and ethical society. So that's what we would want, ideally. Whether we can get that, I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I just, <laughs> it's, a difficult, it's a difficult question. Yeah, so a couple of thoughts, the one is, I've always struggled with, with the idea of virtue ethics because of this ambiguity problem. When you ask questions like, what is a just society? Or what is the wise decision? It seems to kind of get cashed out in other ways. So the wise decision might be, 
well, do the utilitarian thing, calculate the numbers and work out, you know. But I, I think there's something to be said for when you have to make a tough decision that involves human life and that both options are, uh, are bad in some way, but one is better than the other, uh, that the virtue ethics explains some of that, is that we say, well, we did this unkind thing. Um, we did this um, regrettable thing, but it was the best thing, you know, um, and they can explain when you, when you pull the one lever on, on the trolley that you did the right thing, but nonetheless it reflects badly on you, but it would always reflect badly on you in some way and you're acknowledging the full picture. Yeah. But the value of, of your initial thought experiment seems to be bigger than this, which is what you're trying to get at with the thought experiment is what is the value of life? And you're indicating that it's not surely just the human biological nature, it's something else. So what are those things that you think make life valuable? Yeah, so I think that's, that's absolutely correct. So there's a really um, great, great, uh, great quote by um, a philosopher, I forget his name now, but the way he points it out is the question we're faced here is, do we value life for its electrical efflorescence or for something more? And I think that that's such a poetic and poignant way of putting, putting the question. In other words, do we just value life for the fact that it's this really complex chemical process, essentially, in the evolutionary scientific story? Or do we value it for something more? And I think for many people, I mean, there are certainly people who will say that life is valuable per se. And maybe we can discuss some, some plausible theories of that a bit later. But I think for most people, they're going to say being alive per se is not enough. Even if we think it has some value, it doesn't really get to the core of what's valuable about life. Nobody just wants to, for example, be one of those hollow clones, you know, in, an, in, in, a, in a tank with no kind of mental life, no sets of experiences, no sense of, sets of desires, and, and so on. And then the challenge, of course, becomes to um, articulate and cash out and um, give substantive content to what that something more could be. So um, at this point, I think it's useful to distinguish between um, what philosophers might call valuable container theories and neutral container theories. Um, and that roughly tracks this distinction between viewing life as intrinsically valuable or viewing life, the value of life as residing in something else. And the idea is roughly this, is that those who are drawn to the idea that life is intrinsically valuable, just like the mere fact of being a biologically alive human being with, a, with genetic material that is human, are thinking of life like a valuable container. The container itself is valuable, not what, maybe in addition to, but certainly on its own to what it contains. Whereas those who are drawn to the neutral container are not necessarily going to see life as valuable in and of itself, but as a kind of instrumental precondition to other things that are of intrinsic value. So life, human life, is really the key to axiological ends. And different philosophers, I think, are going to differ about, if you adopt that view, different philosophers are going to um, disagree or agree um, about what goes into it. Um, I think we can, for starters, um, just to get the conversation uh, going and see what you guys think about it, I would, I would think that there are some things that are objectively valuable. Um, 
and which are deserving of going onto that, into that bucket. Um, things like pleasure. Um, and whatever that means, intellectual pleasures, physical pleasures, um, um, the, whole, the whole spectrum of what it means for something to be pleasurable, I think that that is an intrinsically valuable thing. Um, I think knowledge um, is intrinsically valuable. Um, relationship, true relationship and communion with other rational minds is valuable. Attendance upon that would be certain kinds of relationships like friendships, which, all, which point towards love as being intrinsically valuable. Um, I think genuine achievement, as opposed to just um, ersatz achievement, might also be on that list. And there are, so there are a number of things then that would go into, um, uh, would, which would be a set of desiderata that we might want um, there to, in order to say that a life is, is worthwhile. And, and the corollary of that would be that to the extent that a life didn't contain those aspects, we would be within our um, intellectual and um, axiological rights to say that a life didn't ha either have value at all or had less value than some other life that had those, those intrinsic goods. So what do you guys think about that? It raises some really cool thought experiments, um, some of which have appeared in philosophy and a lot of which have, have kind of made their way into science fiction. So I don't know if you've watched the series Altered Carbon. Um, yes, love it. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, that series really is exploring this distinction between um, a valuable container or a container that lacks value. Because, you know, what happens in the series, just as a very short uh, summary that, that, that won't ruin the series, it's premised on the idea that... Um, your, your, your consciousness is stored in a cortical stack. So it's this, it's, this little, it's this little stack of information. It's a crystal that's stored at the base of your, of your spine or at the, at the base of your neck rather. And um, it contains all of your thoughts. It records all your thoughts, your, your emotions, your beliefs, your mental states, your psychological profile. And at any time you can remove that stack and place it into another body. And these bodies are kind of uh, traded off um, they traded and, and, and seen as they do have some monetary value, um, but certainly not the kind of value we ascribe to our bodies today. And they call them sleeves. Um, and, and there's a distinction they make between sleeve death and real death. So sleeve death is just where your sleeve dies, your body dies, but you can remove the stack and put in another body. And they see that as really inconsequential, um, especially if you have a lot of money and can just buy a new sleeve versus real death where your cortical stack is smashed. Um, and that really kind of explores this distinction. And then a, a second issue, a second thought experiment I've thought about uh, is Nozick's experience machine. Yes. It's Nozick, right? Not Nagel, right? It's Nozick? Yes, Nozick. It's from um, Anarchy State Utopia. It's where it right. yeah. Fantastic, yeah. fantastic collection. Of yeah, that. it's brilliant. Okay, so, so Nozick talks about the experience machine. You talked about what is objectively good, right? Yes. Um, and and Nozick, Nozick talks about you know, this, this, this thought experiment where you can plug yourself into a machine and the machine will give you all the experiences you've ever wanted. You can program it to give you all the experiences you wanted and those experiences will appear completely real to you. In other words, you'll forget that you ever plugged into the machine. It'll give you all the things that, that you want, pleasure, especially pleasure, lots and lots of pleasure, right? It'll yeah. give you the best life you could possibly lead. Um, and it might even do it in a very convincing way. So your life will gradually get better until you're living this perfect, you idyllic lifestyle right uh, you know so so i was wondering i was 
I had some thoughts and some of them are opaque to me now and some of them are clearer, but I was wondering whether it doesn't capture, you, you talked about how certain goods are very important and they're like yes. real goods, you know, real yes. accomplishments, real yes. relationships, yes. authentic, authentic existence. Yes. Um, and that's, and that's what Nozick's thought experiment is trying to capture. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly, that's, that's why I mentioned real achievements, because I think that, that one of the examples that Nozick gives is, I think of writing the great American novel, right? You can have the experience in the, in the dream machine or the experience machine to have the experience of writing the next great American novel or climbing Mount Kilimanjaro or Mount Everest. And while we may think, and I think the, the point that Nozick's really making is that when we think about these intrinsic goods, these things that make life worth living, his point is really against the person who would give a narrow or very anemic list of what makes life worth living, right? It's, it's not so much that, they're, that he's against the content view, but he's against an anemic and kind of axiologically restrictive content view. So he wants to argue against people who, are, who think that, for example, pleasurable experiences are the only things that are valuable. And I think there he's, for the most part, and I think this is the general consensus, you can tell me if I'm wrong, in the literature is that he's really, he, he makes a persuasive point there. We don't just want good experiences. We want our experiences, whether they be of pleasure, whether they be knowledge, whether they be of relationship, we want them to be hooked up to the world in a particular way. Uh, we want them in a, a veridical way. So we want them caused, produced, resulted from, engaged with in a, in a way that tracks reality, not an ersatz reality. And, and that, would be, that would be an intrinsic good itself that we may want to put on, on the list. We want genuinely in, induced experiences. I think what's so interesting is that that needs to happen for Nozick in your body. Um, yes. The problem Nozick has is that you step into this machine and your body yes. becomes a lump of meat. Um, he, there's, there's, there's a side to his thought experiment, which isn't explored very often, which is, I mean, the thought experiment is meant as an objection to pure hedonism, as you say, yes. to the idea that the only thing that's good is pleasure. Yes. Um, because he says that the, the consensus will be that you shouldn't step into the machine. Right. People, most people, when you ask them, would you step into the machine for the rest of your life? They say no. But what's, right. what, you know, and the conclusion to draw from that is that pleasure isn't the only good. But yes, perhaps yes. another possible conclusion to draw from that is that the container is valuable. In other words, you are not, you are not uh, treating your body with the kind of respect it deserves in life um, yeah. as, a, as, a, as an important vehicle for experiencing that authentic, authentic relationship in your life. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I've never, I, I mean, that's an interesting thought. I've never thought about it that way. I, think, I guess my, my immediate rejoinder, and maybe I'd, maybe if I had more time to think about it, I'd come up with a different answer. But my immediate rejoinder is, I don't think it's about disrespect to your body. I think it's the concern, it's the, the spotlight of concern is focused on the causal relationship between how your body is experiencing. So obviously we agree that your body is necessary in order to have these experiences. Nobody would, would deny that. What I think is concerning though, is how those experiences are being brought about. So there's a kind of a causal relation that we want to obtain between our, our experiences, which are definitely happening in our body. I mean, where else could they happen? A disembodied mind. Well, I don't think we don't even want to go there, but they have to show up somewhere and they're showing up in your, in your body, but we don't want them produced in a particular sort of way. 
So we kind of recoil as kind of an anathema or the idea of the thought experience is that most of us would recoil and think of it as an anathema that they are produced in that way as opposed to any other way. So I've got two, two thoughts. First is, um, this is a lot closer to home for us um, than the sort of sci-fi dystopias we often talk about. So we're all locked up at home, right? And some of us have VR kits. Um, and you can put on that VR kit and you can leave your home. You can go um, you know, play a VR game where you are adopting a different avatar and you're engaged in adventures. Or you're traveling. So you can imagine that you're sort of uh, walking around Rome um, and getting a sense of the city and you know, traveling around the world from the comfort of your own home. Now, part of your claim is that the value of life is that your experiences should track reality. Yes. Here, our experiences uh, would be a mere simulacrum. Um, and yes. so there's some sense fundamentally in which our isolation stops us from having a lot of experiences. And our isolation is eroding the quality of our human life. And from what I gather, for you, the VR wouldn't make it that much better. Yeah, so um, that's an interesting... Um that's an interesting counterexample about the, the VR because, of course, so I agree, I, I agree definitely that the extent to which, for example, a lockdown impinges on um, our ability to go out and really climb Kilimanjaro or really go to, to, to commune with friends and engage in study at university and all these things, that, that's what makes it bad, right? That we're deprived of these intrinsic goods. Um, the VR experience is interesting, though, because, of course, the, the, the idea is not that the experience isn't valuable. It's just, it's almost like it's not as valuable as it would be if it was. Um, so, there's two, so let me rephrase that. Maybe there's two ways to think about it. One is you could say the experience is valuable, qua experience, but it's not as valuable as it would be if it were connected up, if you really were hiking Kilimanjaro, say. So you're, you put on the VR headset, you have the experience of climbing Kilimanjaro, and let's just assume that the VR is sufficiently sophisticated so that you really feel the wind blowing and you have, you know, you kind of forget for a while that you're actually in your living room in your sweatpants <laughs> while COVID rages outside. Um, I think that that would be a valuable experience, but it may not be as valuable. And then the other route is to say, well, it's just not valuable at all, right? Because it's, uh, it's completely ersatz, it's caused in the wrong way. Um, it's just not valuable at all. Um, I'm not sure where I stand on that. I think I might say um, the former. Maybe I'd say that the experience is valuable. There is some value to it, but it's not as valuable as it could be. So if you were, if you were to offer me the comparison, which one would I choose? Um, I would choose the veridical, I would choose the experience that's caused by the veridical tracking of reality. But given that I can't do that, I might still think that there is value in escaping my humdrum life caused by COVID and at least get the simulacra of the good, right? Yeah, so I mean, that's it's one potential answer. If it's an interesting thing, because we think about how Nozick's experiment is typically run, it's, it's run in a university environment and you ask people to raise their hands to see who'd jump into the experience machine and you might find people in isolation say, sign me up. That sounds better <laughs> yes. than the four walls of my living room. I've, I've run this, I've, this, this, very, this very idea. It's so interesting how people's different intuitions on this go such radically different ways. Um, I've spoken to friends and family about those experiment, uh, thought experiment before, and I'm surprised um, by the number of people who say that, sign me up, I'm, I'm ready to go. Like, I'm not supposed to do that, right? 
yeah, it's like, it's like who wouldn't? What a moron if you don't sign up for this amazing gift. Um, there's, a, there's another side to Nozick's experiment as well, which is really interesting. I had occasion um, a couple of weeks ago when, when lockdown first started, I hadn't, um, I was busy scanning DSTV and um, what came on was Vanilla Sky, which I hadn't seen for a long, long time. And I don't know, have you guys seen Vanilla Sky with Tom Cruise and the, the whole thing? And there it's kind of, in some sense, it's the opposite of, of Nozick's experiment because without, I mean, it's a 20-year-old movie, so spoiler alert for anybody who's going to, to watch this movie. I mean, you guys will have seen it. You know that he's, at the end, he finds out he's in the simulation that he originally chose to go into, and he's given the opportunity to either stay in the simulation or leave. And he makes the choice to leave, and one of the considerations that's deeply hinted at in the movies is that he's tired of living a lie, right? He wants to, whatever his life is going to be, outside like outside the simulation he will rather open his eyes and that's the last line of the movie is to open open your open your eyes and to actually engage with reality and not escape for it in this kind of um uh dreamlike utopia so it's so it's interesting when you pose the question like that you can imagine some people being told like if somebody came to you now and said guess what jason mark aaron you guys actually did here's you guys did sign up. You're in the machine now. Would you want to excommunicate yourself from the machine? I mean, this is a lie, and we can. And let's say they could convince you that it was in fact a lie, a sex and a dream. Would you want to now leave your the representations of your family, your friends, the the experiences you've had, the prospects for future experience in this simulation? Would you want to take your chances on the outside? It's a, I think it's, when told that way, you get different, um, you get different intuitions coming to the fore. I wonder whether that's not that dissimilar from the choice we're all facing at the moment. Um, You know, if we take Mark's idea that living in a life of lockdown, it's not a total simulation. I mean, you do literally get up in the morning and you go to the toilet and you eat and you, you get onto Zoom and you have great conversations with great guests. But That's a lot what of the I want us to think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of the time it's not, it's, it's, uh, it's not real life as we would normally yeah. think about it, right? So as Mark says, it's not going out there and experiencing things, it's experiencing them through a lot of the time. I mean, if I think about it, a lot, a lot of my day is spent looking at a screen, whether it be a TV screen, a computer screen, a cell phone screen. I'm looking at representations of the world, but I'm not, looking at the world outside of my, my apartment. Um, I haven't left my apartments in six weeks. And so, 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 you know, the person who, who is in the, the vanilla sky situation who says, well, you know, they come to him and they say, look, you've been living the simulation. Um, would you like to see what's outside? And he makes the choice that I would regardless of how, of how bad it is. You know, we kind of having to make that choice now or eventually, you know, yeah. at what point do we leave and say, there is value to the simulation, there is value to this uh, dulled down um, view of life, but, but there is other value outside life with dangers, um, yeah. you know, which is more valuable and what do we choose? Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. So the other thing I'd like to touch on briefly, and I have a feeling we might need to, to bring you back for another episode to talk about it in more detail, but the yeah. flip side of the coin of the value of human life 
is, as you sort of alluded to earlier, this question of, well, are there certain human lives that um, it's okay to end? So do your, what you've described as what makes life valuable, does that have implications for, let's say, abortion or euthanasia? Yes. Yeah, I think it has huge implications. I mean, I think, I think one of the key divides over, um, let's say, the notion of assisted suicide, um, uh, which would encapsulate instances of euthanasia and abortion is precisely over this notion of the value of life and in what does it reside. Um, and people who tend to think, who, to, who are intent to think that um, valuable container theory is more plausible, um, are going to have very different responses to the question of abortion and assisted suicide than people who embrace um, neutral container theory. For people who embrace valuable container theory, they're going to essentially have an in-principle objection to any and all cases of um, assisted suicide, say. Um, and the argument would run something like, um, it is, it, it follow, first premise would be something like, human lives are per se intrinsically valuable, right? So already that you've got, that's the endorsement of valuable container theory. It's got nothing to do with the contents, so to speak, or the narrative or biographic content of a person's life. Premise two would be something like, it is impermissible to destroy that which is intrinsically valuable, right? And the idea of support for that premise would be like, well, it's just maybe it's basically an analytic truth. If something is intrinsically valuable, what we just mean is it is the sort of thing that um, should be valued, uh, protected, allowed to flourish and exist. Um, and it shouldn't be um, destroyed in any way. I mean, that's, that's essentially, I mean, what is value if not the screaming from the ramparts don't destroy me. Um, and then the third premise would be, well, a, a suicide and by implication assisted suicide is the constitutes the destruction of a human life. Therefore, it constitutes the destruction of something which is intrinsically valuable. And in the conclusion, therefore, it is always, and that's the emphasis, always impermissible. And I think there the question, the, the, while that's a completely valid argument in its syllogistic form and, and the conclusion follows um, deductively from those premises, the question is going to be is, are the premises true? And I think the key premise there is the first premise. Is life per se intrinsically valuable? And that's where we have to go into these intuitive um, cases and push the idea of, for example, hollow clones. Would anyone want to be a hollow clone? If they say yes, what is it about hollow cloneness that could instantiate or express any sort of value? On, on the other side, if you um, endorse neutral container theory, then that doesn't give you necessarily carte blanche uh, to end all lives, but it, will, it would at least allow scope for a certain moral permiss a certain scope for the moral permissibility of suicide and assisted suicide. Because there you're going to recognize that a life viewed in toto could be um, not worth living, right? Quite literally, even though you are alive, you are not living a well-lived, flourishing, good life. And then at least that opens up the possibility um, for the permissibility of um, suicide and assisted suicide um, in, certain, in certain cases. Um, 
what those circumstances are, that's going to be a complicated question and more needs to be said about that. But there's at least the possibility for, for that sort of um, um, ethical argument there. Definitely. And there's some other lovely uh, implications as well. Well, lovely according to some people, but interesting yes. implications. Uh, so like neutral uh, container theory um, is much more consistent with something like David Benatar's view um, on antinatalism. So antinatalism is the view that um, it is better not to have been born. Um, that life in itself doesn't hold any value. In order for it to hold value, it has to have certain features and Benatar thinks it won't have those features. Features like happiness and um, living a good life. Benatar thinks most people don't. And yeah. so he thinks it's better not to have been born. But if, if you believe the, the, that existence in itself is valuable, if the container is valuable, yes. then you can't be an antinatalist, I assume. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, there's, there's something, there's just something about reality such that existing is better than not existing in a value sense. So, um, that would it would remove in some sense one of the first claims that Benetton makes and I'm not a, again I'm not an expert in Benetton I haven't I haven't read much of his work um, uh, I haven't I know his book is his his big book is better never to have been where he lays out his case for for antinatalism but I, as far as I understand it to the extent that I do understand it he he claims that it's a harm in and of itself to come into existence um, and obviously somebody who thinks existence per se, or at least human existence per se, is, a, is intrinsically good, would have reason to deny that. Um, but then again, it just begs the question, is that itself a plausible account of value? Should we think, give me reason, sell me, why human life is intrinsically valuable per se? Well, yeah, he's taking the opposite view that it's intrinsically yeah. bad, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> Yes, it just, but that's what I'm saying. It's 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 you're going to have to motivate one or one or the other in that case. But somebody who takes valuable container theory is going to be dead set against it. Seems to me um, Bennett's view. Yeah. Whereas um, somebody who's endorsed a neutral container view may or may not be. Yeah. Yeah. So Bennett's view is actually a third view, which is that it's not neutral. It's it's in and of itself bad to be to be brought into existence. Um, he sort of. I mean, when pushed on the topic um, and was asked if you were brought into a world in which it was, it was the best of all possible worlds, all of the world's pleasures were there. But as soon as you got into the world, you got one pinprick. Um, would it be better never to have been? And he says, yes. He thinks that yeah, our yeah. harm is prima facie wrong and that cannot really be undone by, by the, the goods. Um, now, uh, it's an interesting view and it's something that I think would be nice to chat to, to David about. But I want to ask you something else, which is I gather that the implication of a neutral container view is, well, it seems to depend what we put inside the container. So if the container is filled with lots of suffering um, or a lack of meaning, um, you know, then we might think, well, that, that is not a life worth living. But it also what we might have is that it's a temporary suffering or a temporary pain. And so when we judge the contents of the container, we might want to judge it over time. So to sort of say, in other words, let's say you've got the, uh, the person who's been in a horrible car accident, who is depressed and in a lot of pain, might say, I wish I was dead. Um, but in six months time, they'll be back to their same old selves. They'll be happy, they'll, they won't be in pain anymore. And so when we are adjudicating the value of the container, you know, is it a snapshot in time or is it a sort of potential? 
And if we take that potential approach, um, assuming we're not an antinatalist, you know, the, when we look at the fetus, we might say, well, there's this potential for a whole bunch of, bunch of wonderful experiences, even at the moment if the, the vessel is, uh, is empty. You know, it is not experiencing anything at the moment. Yes. It will one day be filled with, with joy. Yes. That's quite clever because you, 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 you're arguing for a valuable container theory um, from the potential of, of its contents. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the thing, definitely. So, I mean, I think the thing I would want to say with the um, fetus is that the fetus is not the sort of thing yet that can have experience. All right. So this, so this is, a, this goes to a question about, you know, this, this argument about why it's wrong to abort a thesis is because it will potentially be a person and then being a person will potentially allow for all for this accrual of intrinsic goods, you know, so, so being a person is like having a bank account and then having a bank account is a necessary precondition for, for having money in the bank account, right? But it doesn't follow from the fact that something will be potentially X, that you should treat it as X now. Right, so that's really important. So the idea is it, the, the the classic counterexample is it is a, an acorn is in the future an oak tree. Right? It doesn't follow that you should treat the acorn as if it is now an oak tree. So the same thing would be anal analogous to the fetus, right? So this, I'm just thinking, I'm just riffing here about the way to 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 deal with this is to say to the per that person, yes. In future, this entity might become a person and then will have these intrinsic goods as part of its life, but it is not a person now. And so it doesn't warrant the concern that you would want to give a person. So in other words, per persons are valuable. We care about personhood because they are the sorts of things for whom life can go better or worse. Life can't go better or worse for the fetus because it is not a person. It is at that stage very much equivalent to um, any other biological something that we don't think has the capacity for experiences at that time. So philosophers would say that the biological entity, the body, is necessary but not sufficient for value. Yes. Yes. That's absolutely correct. So can you make that response with regard to, let's say, the the suicidal teenager who's just broken up with her boyfriend and who says, right now, I am someone who is so heartbroken that I want to die. And you say, but yeah. future you will be recovered and not feel that way. She says, don't talk about my potential. Address me as I am. Um, <laughs> yeah. I want to die and I demand a right to die. True. Okay. So no, that's, no, that's a, that's a completely valid point. And I think here we have to be very careful not to slip between two different questions. There is on the one hand an, ontologic, an ontological question about whether a person's life is in fact valuable, viewed in toto at that time, right? So that is a, a question about reality. There's a separate and distinct question about knowing whether one is in the presence of a life that is worth living, right? So we must distinguish, and this is absolutely crucial to distinguish between what it takes to make a life in reality worth living, the contents, right? And epistemically assessing that you are in the presence of a life worth living. 
And I think here what the, the issue might be is that it raises the question about who has epistemic priority to assess the value of their life. And here I actually have a, a nuanced view, um, which is that it's a prima facie view, that the prima facie judgment in that case should go to the person whose life it is. Because that person has privileged, what I call privileged epistemic access to the contents of their life as it has, as they have lived it. And they're in the best position, prima facie, to assess their future prospects. So if we are going to defer to anyone's judgment, it should at least prima facie, and I'm emphasizing that word, because it's not irrebuttable. And that's the key thing. We are, so, so in other words, you're faced with this person, I, I think in my, my, my um, thesis when I, when I um, wrote about this, I dealt with this question exactly, specifically about, I, even, I think I even used the example of somebody who's gone through their first heartbreak and now wants to, as anybody who's gone through heartbreak knows, wants to curl up into the fetal position and just end it all. We've all, we've all been there. Um, we, would, we would rightly think that, he's, that that person, man or woman, or non-cisgendered is making a terrible, terrible mistake. Um, and we would want to provide reasons for why they're making that terrible mistake. Um, so while we would, in some cases, respect that person's epistemic assessment of the value of their life, we also need to bear in mind that some people, and this is, uh, applies to ourselves as well, um, often are not infallible with regard to that assessment. And so it's a prima facie, what I call the prima facie um, deference view. Um, people should, are, are the people whose life it is are in the best position to make that assessment because um, they've lived it from the marrow to the meat, as it were. Um, but they're not infallible and um, they can get things wrong and they can make terrible and sometimes tragic misjudgments about the, the current and or prospective value that their life might contain. So I'm going to play um, a lay person here for a moment and yes. just ask you to define two terms. Um, yes, sorry. <laughs> so the, no, no problem. So the, so the one is uh, what, what you mean by prima facie or prima facie, yes. and the other is what you mean by epistemic or epistemic, okay. epistemic access. So, yeah, so let me start with epistemic. So epistemic um, comes from the word epistemology, and epistemology is the study of knowledge. So um, in philosophy, there's a distinction made between um, the study of knowledge, what does it take for us to know things of the world and ourselves? And then there's a question about, there are on the other side, ontological or metaphysical questions about what exists and the nature of what exists. So when relate, so just to, just to explain that with relation to value, the, um, the, the account I was giving of value before is an account of the existence of what is valuable and the nature of value in reality. And then there's a separate question about how one might know one is in the presence, for example, of a valuable life. Um, and then as to the second definition, the question about prima facie or prima facie, tomato, tomato, um, that is just on first blush. So in other words, um, you have um, sufficient evidence to hold a position, but it's not irrebuttable. It can be rebutted and overridden by other considerations. So in other words, the, a philosopher might use the word, it can be defeated by other considerations. So if you hold 
um, for example, a certain a prima facie belief, um, you might learn further information that undermines the prima facie warrant for that belief. And then you would have reason to reject that belief, for example. So that's, that's the, the, the broad distinctions. So Aaron, I just want to say thank you for an absolutely um, electrifying conversation. We've sort of uh, managed to cover an incredible amount of territory, starting off with eating Marilyn Monroe's thigh and then uh, <laughs> holding ourselves in heartbreak after we lose our first love. It's exactly the kind of uh, journey that we want to be taking our viewers on. Uh, yeah. And uh, we will have to have you back because this conversation has really opened up you know, so many more avenues for discussion. And I'm particularly excited to have you on to talk about some of your views on philosophy of religion. And you know, Aaron is a real specialist in this area and that's something we want to talk about uh, in much more detail. So thank you very much. Thank you. I'd love to, I've really enjoyed this conversation. This, is, uh, this has been fantastic. Uh, you guys are great. And I look forward to coming on and talking uh, more philosophy with you guys.